Hi, my name is Paul Crandall, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment, whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc.isunrise.com. That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. My name is Pastor James, and I am really excited about sharing God's Word with you today, an incredible uh, part of the story of your life and my life. In fact, you're going to see that today. Before I begin, though, I was talking to Marty Hogstad, who leads all of our small groups. She'll be up later to talk about the fall groups and the journey and a lot of the things we've going on. And Marty and I, in that quick moment, agreed that the most important thing happening in the fall is my group. We, we locked eyes and we looked at each other and it was just a common understanding that my group's the best. So I want to tell you about my group. It's an actual class. It's on how to study the Bible uh, for personal use, for how to open the Bible and read it, how to understand it, how to get on, you know, the stuff in your head and in your heart and in your hands and, in, you know, in your habits and all things like that. So if you've never been to my Bible study methods class... I don't know what you've been doing with your life, but now is your chance. And I started the Sunday after men's roundup, which would be the 17th. We're going to do it in the evening at 6.30 after AA in the, uh, the fireside room. Super excited about that, and I'd love to have you to the best class we are offering until Marty comes up and corrects me. So, but since I have the mic, I can say what I want for this moment. So, anyway, thank you. Here. I'm glad you're here. Maybe some of you are here longer than me, more than 30 years, a couple of you. You were here like day one. Thank you for being here. Some of you have been here like three months. Some of you maybe three minutes. And if so, you were late to church. But glad you're here. I want to tell you uh, about a couple things. And I want to kind of engage with you today a little bit in the head. And i got to warn you up front. There's a lot of content. And then we'll dissect it. And it's kind of like I'm going to back a dump truck up. Dump a bunch of stuff, just bear with me, and we'll start pulling through it to figure out how this applies to the text we're looking at today. I think it's actually pretty important. Now, I want to start by talking about cultural norms. Cultural norms, uh, if you thought about it, are those parts of our culture that describe how we should behave or how we should not behave. Every culture has practices, and most people never think about it. And if you only live in that culture, you think that's how everybody acts around the world and then you hop on an airplane and you go somewhere and you offend people without even knowing it, right? Or you hear something and you want, now these days on Facebook and you're like instantly offended. How many have ever been offended on Facebook? Oh, come on. You don't read Facebook if you haven't been offended. Um, cultural norms, now here's important, reflect the values. Cultural norms reflect the values and priorities of a society. And they kind of keep those. For example, 
And these are just small. But I was raised early on my first 10 years in the Midwest, in Indiana. And I was taught to say, sir. I was taught to say, sir. And I just say that. I just say that all the time. And ma'am, I've untaught myself. That's a bad way to say it, to say ma'am, because that's actually offensive for some gals. But I was taught to say, sir. I say it all the time. And it kind of comes, sometimes I'm like, I said, sir, to someone who's 34 and I'm 58. What does that mean? Okay, I was just raised that way. The second uh, 10 years of my life, we moved to California. And even though I still had sir, everybody else was just dude. And so you're either sir or dude. Um, and, you know, cultural norms. Uh, I learned in high school, I heard the word awesome the very first time. And I just, I, I can't stop saying it. I'm 58. I just was like, awesome. It was something that just flood, flooded all through, flooded all through California. That's a really interesting thing to say today. I texted my sister who was in L.A. I said, good luck getting a church and back. She goes, I'm taking a canoe. Um, but, um, you know, th there's a reality of how life is for you. For me growing up, we dressed up going to church. And that does not mean putting a Raiders polo on. That means putting a three-piece suit on. All right. Anybody grow up? dressing up to church. Raise your hands. Okay. It was a norm, right? If you don't dress up, you don't love God or respect God or it's offensive. Um, I still, <laughs> I did it this morning. I still raise my hand when I want to answer a question. People look at me. I'm the boss at a, you know, at an organization and I still go like this and people think it's kind of weird. Um, I still say things like, bless you when someone sneezes, God bless you. I was in Home Depot last week picking up some things and I sneezed and this young gal looked and she says, God bless you. And I'm like, thank you very much, you know. Uh, it's just kind of a norm, right? Um, I opened the door for ladies. I have yet to get my head bitten off for that one, but open the door for gals, okay. Uh, here's one that's interesting. I was taught to never to cut in line. Even at Disneyland. And so I'm standing in the line to get to my ticket to get out of Israel a month ago. And we're all standing there. And it is complicated. It takes like four hours to get out of Israel. It's easy to get in. It's hard to get out. That seems really weird. But it's true. The grilling and the questioning. And, and so I'm standing in line. And we're all in line. And we're kind of agitated because we had to bend a couple lines. And one of the tickets didn't work out. And I'm responsible for a group. And, and i got to figure this out. And all of a sudden we're standing in line. And it's just getting hot. And this rabbi... And his family, dressed in black, come and cut in the front of the line and get there. I, I was not happy. Okay, that's a church way of saying I was really, I'm not going to say the word, but I was angry, okay? And, but it's a cultural norm for the rabbi to be better than everybody else. And he expected it. And everybody in the line was angry. But for him it was a cultural norm. I'm a rabbi, I'm a Jewish rabbi, I get to do what I want. Okay, we all have these rules. Now, here's a question, just for the sake of it. Turn to your neighbor, and, and if you remember, share a norm that you grew up as with a kid, like a cultural norm. Just share it right now. Go ahead. What's a norm that you grew up with? I shared some of mine. Somebody share some. Come on, just turn to your neighbor. <clears throat> turn, to the, turn to her. You don't have a neighbor. <clears throat> See, the fact is we all have cultural norms. I know it. Okay, now, you could just stick them on Facebook if you wanted, okay? And if you're watching online and you're on Facebook or, or, or YouTube, put it on there right now. Um, because those are things that we grew up thinking are normal, but there's a reason why. Culture has decided that's accepted. And in fact, those cultural norms not only are accepted, they're protected. Because they not only define us, they protect us. They actually protect us. Um, have you ever, have you ever 
like done something or said something and really realized it was like a faux pas. It was like, oh my goodness, I grew up saying this, but that was really a bad thing to say. Okay, yeah, we've done that. We find ourselves in a moment where like my culture is clashing with the culture I'm in, right? Or the culture I'm in doesn't understand my culture. Especially we have a lot of folks from around the world that, that live in the Hillsborough area and from just all kinds of nations. And it's really easy to think that way. Um, sometimes our, our norms can be offensive to others. Sometimes they can be insulting or just confusing. So I was in Cuba, uh, very first time a number of years ago, we were going there to train pastors and Pastor Israel and I, and it was just, we just had a great time. But we, uh, we went to a church and we didn't preach, but we went to a church there in, in Cuba and uh, we were welcomed and we introduced and said what we wanted to do. And afterwards, the pastor made us stand at the door and there were probably around 50 or more people there and everyone who came out of the door, male and female, kissed us on both cheeks. It was just like, I've never had that happen before, okay? It was kind of weird. And men and women were like kissing on both of the cheeks. And, and um, that they were greeting one another with a holy kiss, as scriptures say, right? We don't do that at sunrise. Praise the Lord, okay? We don't do that. I shake hands. That's agreed. I shake hands. I read this morning, I was just, you know, curious about this. I read, do you know that if you are in Tibet, the traditional greeting is to stick out your tongue at the person? Because it, it deals with cleanliness, so you don't want to shake hands, but you can. So, so do me a favor. Our new sunrise greeting right now. Practice it. Would everybody just greet me quickly? Okay, thank you very much. All right. So um, it's kind of different, right? I mean, these norms, you're like, well, that's weird. If you go to Tibet and everybody's sticking their tongue out at you, you're like, I need a dictionary or help. Somebody please help me, right? Um, here's one. My wife and I, when we uh, backpacked around Europe, we traveled around Europe in summer 2000, uh, BC days before kids, and um, when we had time and money. And um, we were so offended by everybody in Europe who had these things called cell phones, and they were always talking on them, walking on the street, and ignoring the people around them. That was highly offensive to us. Uh, for a couple years. <laughs> when we got back, everybody got cell phones. We, they were before us, but it's just like, now it's just normal, right? You just kind of ignore the people you're on a, you know, you're on the max or whatever on a train and, or, you know, in the car and a bus or whatever. You just talk, right? You just ignore the people around you because you're talking to this invisible person in your head. Okay. We used to go to hospitals for things like that. Um, here's one that just I've never understood. In Victoria, England, the mid-1800s, this one blows me away. And I know you've seen these things. That it was a cultural norm when someone in your family passed before you buried them, you took a family photo with them. Have you ever seen that? It is creepy. It's like that's why we make horror movies for stuff like that, right? Babies, children, older folks, they would prop them up and take one last family photo. Yeah, that's a cultural norm I'm glad we killed, right? I mean, that is weird. But that was a cultural norm. That would be highly offensive to us today. Um, in Europe, uh, tipping, like after a meal, is highly offensive, now it's 25%, right? Um, some cultures, last one, some cultures go way out of their way to honor the older people, the people with gray hair. And other cultures say, hey, boomer, it's time to die, you know. <laughs> Pass your money on to me. Now, I say all this because in the Bible, in the, the Gospels, in the book of Acts, there were cultural norms that we don't think about. That really hindered the church's ability to reach people. In fact, it put a wall up between the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people when it came to sharing Christ. And I would think that if sometime during this message you could evaluate your own heart, you might discover 
that there's a cultural norm that keeps you from building a relationship with someone that might be about sharing the gospel. Um, so I, I want to share some of these. These are five of them, and they were the big ones. These were the cultural norms of the time of Jesus. They're on the screen. Number one was Jews celebrated the Sabbath. That was the day of ceasing. That was Saturday, you know, for us. They celebrated the Sabbath, but it wasn't just a day of ceasing. It was a religious day. Started at sundown on Friday and went to sundown on Saturday. And you couldn't work and you couldn't travel a certain amount of time. And it was very important. The Sabbath was vital. Celebrating the Sabbath was vital. And if you stop and think about it, did Jesus ever get in trouble in the Gospels for violating Sabbath laws? Okay, not God's Sabbath laws, but Pharisee Sabbath laws. You know, religious Sabbath laws. Absolutely. He healed on the Sabbath. He did things on the Sabbath. It was offensive to them. The Jewish people were offended. They couldn't understand how Jesus, who claimed to be a rabbi, would break a cultural norm. That had its roots way down in the Bible. Of course, they had added to it. That was a cultural norm. Jesus violated that one. Eating only what was kosher. Uh, kosher, like, uh, really, like, pure. In the Old Testament law, there was a lot of things you couldn't eat and you could eat. And then they've added a lot of things. And now you can, you know, have things. There's a little K symbol if you go to the store. It's kosher. All right. And so this is clean. This is not clean. It's kosher to do only eat things that are clean. And then washing hands and things like that. Circumcision of young males. That goes back to Abraham, right? That was so much an identifier. Which is like weird. I don't know how that was an identifier. Because I don't know. That's just weird. Okay. Uh, laws regarding cleanliness. Okay. Man, did Jesus ever get in trouble for not washing his hands? Yeah, what was wrong with his mom, okay? Well, it was a religious washing of hands. And there were cups. And, you know, depending on what the material of the cup was, this was a cup that was clean. This was a cup that was unclean. Because it could literally, when Jesus sat down with a Samaritan woman and, you know, he asked for a drink of water, her in the, in the you know, the, the language and the culture that they ask, why would you ask for me with the cup? Because Jews don't touch their lips to the cups of Samaritan. Samaritan, because that makes it unclean and they'd be unclean. There's all these cootie laws, right? Cooties, you know, when you're a kid, all right? They're, they're, they were very, very important. These are laws about cleanliness, and you got to be clean or you're not. And there's a lot of that in the law, the Old Testament law, right? The rules and commands. Um, and then here's one more. Rules spelling out the proper interaction with foreigners, which was don't. That was the big don't, okay? In fact, when you left Israel and you went to a foreign territory like Damascus or Syria or to the Decapolis in there, um, you would, <laughs> before you cross back into Israel, I don't know if there was a line, but this is how they, they would shake the dust off their feet of their little crocs and they would just make sure their sandals had no dirty goobers from the Jewish, uh, the Gentile land and then they would walk in, right? Because that's filthy stuff, you know. They would call non-Jews dogs. Um, there was just like a disdain. These cultural norms created um, a hatred, to be completely honest, for anybody that didn't match those norms. They were religious. And this is part of the problem was when our cultural norms get infused with God, okay, or, or better yet, we infuse God with those. I think God wants to stay out of them personally, okay, but we stick God in those things. It's important to overstate how important these cultural norms were. For the people at the time of the Gospels, the time of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those stories, and the book of Acts. And that's why I'm sharing all of this. Because if, if you think about this, the Jewish people were a small group of people in a very large Roman Empire. There was just a nothing group of people in a nothing land, right? But then within that were a smaller group of people called Messianic Jews or followers of Jesus or later be called Christians, right? 
And, and so there was a clash right there. Because if the Christians were ever going to reach beyond the Jewish people, the Jewish people aren't going to accept that because they're Jewish, right? It's, it's, just, it's a really fascinating thing when you start to think about it. And we're going to see how the tension that's created in our story is something you just don't see when you read it. But it is incredibly there. In fact, this is where we go. We go to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is uh, not the story we're going to see today, but it's the pre-story. Before Jesus ascended, before Acts chapter 2, you know, that's when the Holy Spirit came down and the church was born. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, which is a word we saw a couple weeks ago with Stephen, martyr. You'll be my witnesses, okay? You'll be my witnesses. You're going to tell everybody. You're going to go everywhere and talk about Jesus. And here's how the game plan is going to work out. You're going to start in Jerusalem. Uh, the temple's there. It's going to happen there. And then you're going to go to Judea. Judea is the countryside, the bigger part of that. Then you're going to go to Samaria, which... Um, Shockingly, had the Samaritans, okay? <laughs> but the Samaritans were half Jew, half Greek, Gentile. And then you're going to go to the ends of the world, to the Gentiles. A and guess what? The church didn't do that. They didn't do that. In fact, uh, Bible scholars tell us anywhere between 8 to 10 years after Acts chapter 2, they still hadn't gone. The church wanted to be safe. The early Christians played it safe in their Jerusalem Judea context. Why? Because there was a wall that was set up between Jews and Samaritans. There was a wall that was set up between Jews and Gentiles. Anybody that didn't practice all of these cultural norms was seen as anathema, hated by God, all right? And so Jesus said, you're going to go there, but they didn't. And it took persecution. We saw a couple weeks ago, I got to preach on Stephen. It took that to forced the church out, and then the church obeyed. But for eight to ten years, they didn't go. It would be like if, you know, Jesus said, you're going to be, you know, my witnesses in Hillsboro and Washington County and Portland, you know, and then Eugene, right? All right. That's, just, that's the worst I can think of right there. I don't know. <laughs> and we go to Hillsboro and Washington County because we're safe, but we don't want to go to Portland because we don't want to go through the tunnel. Have you been to Portland? Those people are unclean, you know. We don't go out to Eugene because look at all the atheistic, anarchist stuff. We don't want to do that. And we stay in our country and our, stay in our little culture and stay in our county and we stay with what's safe. That's what happened with the early church until Acts chapter 10. And that's where we find ourselves today. Acts chapter 10. Um, if you um, are reading through the New Testament with us in our, our New Testament through the year on the Bible project, on the, the Bible app, uh, it, yesterday was a phenomenal overview of 1 Corinthians. If, if you're not, please just go to the Bible project and look at their 1 Corinthians video. It's, it was incredible. I'm sitting there watching it yesterday going, I already had my sermon. I'm like, that's exactly my sermon right there. The Greek church now, the Gentile church is struggling with the Jewish people. It's going back and forth. It's an incredible conversation there. Okay, so um, we're going to jump into this. What, what I want to do is I want to share um, a big idea, um, and it's this. Our ability, our ability to reach people is limited by our disgust toward them. Our ability to reach people is limited by our disgust toward them. You see, the defining moment of the church was when Peter was forced by God to go to a Gentile. And the church exploded at that point. 
See, the struggle is, is that the Gentiles were so far from God that the Jews didn't want to interact with them. They, they ate bad, unclean food. They didn't practice the Sabbath. None of the cultural norms were evident in the Greek people's life, the Gentiles' life. And so they kind of kept away. Now, now, I just said that big idea. Our ability to reach people is limited by our disgust toward them. And I'll flesh that out a little bit later in more detail. But just think about that right now. Don't answer. But are there people in our culture that you're disgusted with? Again, think about it. I mean, we got all kinds of people we could be disgusted with, right? Politicians, Democrats, Republicans, liberals, conservatives, atheists, LGBTQ+, people that parked in my parking spot at church, right? We are a people from our heart. We are a people that find reasons to be disgusted with others. But if you're disgusted with someone, you will never be able to reach them for Christ. Okay, that's, that's kind of what we're going to talk about. It got really quiet in here, sorry. Um, this is going to make a lot of sense in a few minutes. Acts chapter 10, let me read through. It starts with this. At Caesarea, this is a Roman outpost on the coast in the north. It's a beautiful place. You can go there now. I was there a month ago. It's great. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius a centurion. So a centurion was in charge of a large group of Roman soldiers. But more than that, he was known as from the Italian cohort. So he's, he's like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm from Italy. I'm from Rome. I've, I've come from there. So this is a prestigious thing. But look at this guy as a Gentile, as a Roman, as a centurion, as a leader of the military that's opposing and ruling over the Jewish people. Look at this guy. It says he was a devout man. Interesting. And feared God. More on that later. His whole household feared God. It says he gave alms generously to the poor. That's important. And look at this. Prayed continually to God. Remember hearing growing up that the first prayer God ever hears from an atheist or a non-believer is prayer of repentance. I'm like, well, that ain't true because this guy prayed and he gave and he served and he somehow loved God but didn't know God yet. This is an interesting thing, all right? So he goes on, it says, about the ninth hour, this is three in the afternoon, ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, <laughs> check this out, this will tweak your theological grid here, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial to God. Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, had departed, he called two of his servants and devout soldier among them who attended him. And having relayed everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So Caesarea, Caesarea or Caesarea is in the north. And then Joppa or, uh, you know, Jaffa is down in the south, about 40 miles. So he sent him down there, okay? Got to go get this guy named Simon. Got to figure out what this vision means. If you only think about one thing or highlight one thing in this, is this the term God-fearer. He was a God-fearer. What's a God-fearer? There were a group of Gentiles, uh, pagans. Uh, the, the, <laughs> if, you, if, you read, if you read in the King James, they were babblers. They were, they, they were babblers. They were the barbarians. That's what barbarian means, to babble, because we didn't understand their language. They're just barbarians. There were barbarians out there that somehow had some kind of connection to the reality of a God. And they wanted to know that God. And so they did things, maybe in ignorance, maybe with some amount of wisdom. They were called God-fears. You see them in uh, the New Testament. You see them in, actually, Luke's the only one that records that, which is kind of interesting. 
uh, in Luke, uh, John, uh, Luke 7, Jesus heals uh, the servant of a centurion in Capernaum, right? He helped build the synagogue. That's a pretty significant thing. A Roman centurion helps build the Jewish synagogue. Okay. Uh, and he was a God-fearer. Doesn't mean he was a, a true Jew or later even a Christian, but he had uh, some kind of respect for God, and he leaned in on that, but he still had all his, you know, barbarian behaviors, as it were, right? And so he would still be offensive to Jews, but he was a God-fearer. In uh, around like Acts 13, Paul is speaking in a synagogue, and it says he speaks to the Jews and the God-fearers. Another time he speaks to the Jews and the God-fearers. So Gentiles would show up to a synagogue, which was only for Jews, right? That had to be super uncomfortable, okay? But they were the God-fearers. This guy's a God-fearer. Is it possible that someone who disgusts you actually wants to know God? That's interesting. What if, what if they're praying to God? What if they're trying to do some of the things they think are right and they're leaning in on this, giving to the poor, being devout, praying to God, the God they don't even know yet? What if, what if, and worse, what if our disgust for them prevents them from discovering this? Cultures are beginning to clash because you've got Jews and Gentiles hanging out together. Uh, the story goes this way. Uh, the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour again to pray about noon, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And a voice came to, uh, and there a voice came, Peter, rise Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, no means, Lord. It's, I've always liked that. There's a couple times when people say, no, Lord. It's like, how, how can you say no, Lord? <laughs> is he Lord or is he, is it yes? There's always a yes, Lord. But this is like a no, Lord. No, there's no way, Lord. God, I know you're in control, but you're wrong. Okay? No, Lord. No, Lord. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, there's an incredible amount of stuff we could talk about in the story. I just want to focus on two words. You know what they are? Clean and unclean. Those are the only two words that really matter to me right now today in this passage. Clean and unclean. Now, it doesn't mean they washed them in the sink, okay, or didn't. It meant they were ceremonially clean. They were, they were righteous. They were, they were holy in the sense that God had said this was good. And there were clean foods. Pure, free from defilement is what the word means. And there were unclean foods. Unclean meant defiled or polluted. And Peter said to God, no, Lord, I've never eaten unclean stuff. I've only eaten clean stuff. And God says to him, how dare you call what I have called clean, unclean. That's a tense moment, right? He's in a trance. The Lord's speaking to him. An angel had showed up to this Roman centurion. And so God's going to do something huge here. Look at the contrast. Now, in the, in the Jewish cultural norms of the day, all of them were a safeguard. So you as a Jew never had to worry about being unclean because you followed the rules. And you could never be accused of eating the wrong thing, what was kosher. Now, what about us? What about us as people? What, what kind of rules do we put in place to not be unclean? 
And I'm not talking about preference, like whether you like mushrooms or not on your pizza, okay? I'm talking about a deep-seated, this is right and this is wrong. Whether God really said it like that, but that's how you grew up or that's a conviction of your moment right now in your heart. You're like, this is right and wrong. What kind of things have we put together in our culture? Um, I know churches do it all the time. Churches do it all the time. I get the privilege of preaching at other churches and going there and I'm always asking, okay, what am I supposed to wear? What translation am I supposed to preach through? Because <laughs> those are two things that will really offend people immediately. Guaranteed, guaranteed. Um, way back in the day in the old building, you guys remember this, before we had AC, those were some sweaty days, right? We had an evening service, I'd preach in shorts, okay? Man, I remember somebody coming once and just highly offended that I, gosh, Jesus would have never preached in shorts. Well, of course not. He had a robe, okay? All right. But that was highly offensive. So I, I, I take care. What am I supposed to wear when I go to this church? I'll wear a tie. I'll wear a coat, a jacket. Uh, you know, I will. I, I don't wear suits unless it's a funeral. If you see me in a suit, it's not a good day. Or a wedding, that's a good day. Um, I did a wedding at Smith Rock this summer of some Sunrise folks. And um, I'm like, I don't know. How do, you, how do you dress for Smith Rock? I have ideas. But what do you want me to wear? And I had to figure it out. That's a cultural expectation. And you don't want to offend someone accidentally, Right? Translation of the Bible. Which one do you use? Hey, if you use King James, I will use King James. If you use, you know, NLT, I'll use NLT. If you use ESV, I'll use ESV because I could care less. Because I care about you, right? But it's easy in the church to create norms. Cultural norms and think they're God. Like songs, hymns, styles, all that stuff. We do all that, right? Um, and then we kind of want to live in that because it's safe. I remember when I was in college, I was an RA in my dorm. And um, Christian music and Amy Grant, and that's all I have to say about that. And there was a lot of all kinds of stuff back in the 80s. And um, this guy came to me and he's like, hey, James, could you, could you just create a list of songs and albums and people that I can listen to? <laughs> oh, God forbid that I would create a bunch of songs and lists and artists that God has endorsed, okay? Or that's anathema to God. Because that's country music right there. That's anathema to God. But, um, okay, you know what I'm talking about. Why do we do this? There's something in our hearts. That's the, we got to get to this. There's something in our hearts that says, this is what I like. This is what I grew up with. This is when I had my spiritual moment however many years ago. And that's how God wants it to. And then we're offended. And that wall of a Bible translation, of a way of dress, of a style of music or anything, whether you have pews or chairs or you name it, that can create a wall that keeps people away from the gospel. And we are justified in our hearts and minds, right? So you got to remember this, friends. God didn't come and save us because we were clean. None of us were clean. We were all unclean. We were all unclean. God saved us because we were hurting and broken and lost and filthy and dirty in the gutter. And he reached out to us and redeemed us and saved us. So we, God forbid that we would ever get and start to create some clean laws. As if we invented them and we live by them. We didn't. We were unclean. We were hurting. We were broken. Over and over in the Gospels, we see Jesus move towards messy people and embrace them right where they were. Not where they were supposed to be. And that got him in trouble. Here's, here's our big idea, again, I want to illustrate this. Our ability to reach people is limited by our disgust towards them. Our ability to reach people is limited by our disgust towards them. Now, um, just a second. We love you, 
So I have a question for you. Where was that spit before I spit it in the cup? In my mouth? Where was it after I drank it? So what's the difference? Why did you recoil? Why? There, because it's disgusting, right? I just disgusted you. A couple years ago, my wife reminded me of this. One of my friends, Harry, was up here. And I brought him up and I had him eat some meat. And I said, while he was chewing, it was good steak because Harry liked steak. And I said, stop. And he spit it out on a plate and I started eating it. Why? Because I wanted to illustrate that you shouldn't be just listening to my sermons. Don't just be chewing food that's already been chewed. Go, go eat your own food, okay? And that was a lot of fun. And people were really disgusted. I wasn't. Because I was the pastor. And it was my illustration. What's disgust? Disgust is a feeling of revulsion, right? It's um, something's unpleasant. Something's offensive, right? It, it's, it's offensive. We, we have created that's not clean and we're disgusted. We're revulsed by it. And check this out. We naturally move away from stuff that disgusts us. We do. We don't like to hang around with that, right? Man, when my kids were little, the, the, I could change diapers all day long. But when they, when they vomited, oh, man, I'm like done. I can't do vomit. I can clean poopy diapers, but I can't do vomit. That was just like over the limit for me, right? Okay. Disgust creates a boundary around the person and makes them into an object because it's safe to make an object out of a person over there. And here's the thing. Disgust becomes a problem when we project it onto people, when we're disgusted by people. How can we be disgusted by people? They're people. They're humanity. <laughs> I remember this. Uh, we used to have a homeless shelter about a dozen years. And three months, 90 days, cold weather shelter, nonstop. And it would take a toll on all of us in the building and everything. And by about month one or middle and month two, the building would start to smell. All right? And staff would complain. And, and I remember saying this once. They said, you know what? That's the smell of humanity. So disciple your nose and get over it. Right? Okay, now let me tell you another story that reveals how much of a big fat hypocrite I am, okay? I'm walking out of Home Deep, uh, Harbor Freight with my son Josiah. We'd gone to get a tool, working on something, and we walk out, and man, there was like incredible stench. And a, a homeless guy is walking this way, and I'm just like recoiling, and internally, I'm disgusted. <sighs> and he turns to me and says, Pastor James. And I'm dying inside because I was disgusted by someone that I knew. And I'm just like, oh, I'm such a hypocrite. And I went and embraced him and talked with him a little bit. I'm like, how could I just make a, an object out of someone? And how could I put him over there and put him in a category because he hadn't had a shower in forever, whatever, you know? I did it. We're all like this, folks. We all have groups or things like that beliefs and we put them out there and project them out there and we call them disgusting and you will never reach a person like that you will never reach a person like that because you've already decided in your heart that they're too far gone and you are limited in your ability we got to move towards the messes that's what jesus did that's what got him in trouble john or luke luke 15 uh, jesus is is uh, there he's hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners and it says the it's not on the screen but the religious people, the Pharisees, scribes, all those people, it says they grumbled, they complained um, because he was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And this is what it says. This is their complaint. This man receives sinners. 
That's why they were so angry. This man received sinners. It uh, metaphorically meant to set a table for, but it, it literally meant to draw close to yourself, to welcome in, to open the door to anyone. This man received broken and sinful people, and that disgusted the religious people. Jesus moved towards broken people. It's so easy for us as followers of Jesus to forget that we were once lost. Um, uh, I want to highlight something. I'd, I'd encourage everybody to buy this. This is my son's book. I've got a copy of it. Does the Bible support same-sex marriage? Preston Sprinkle. Love Preston. Um, I've heard him for about uh, since 20, 2015 or so. Um, and uh, he's got this great book. And he's talking about these are the so-called arguments that people say the Bible accepts. Let's just look at the Bible. And he does an incredible job, a loving job. The thing about Preston and this book is he starts with this. And this is like so good. He says, if you're ever going to have a conversation with someone, you have to have a relationship with them. And so he starts with some presuppositional beliefs. He says, first of all, be willing to rethink your point of view. God forbid, because I'm right. If you're not willing to rethink your point of view, you'll never have a conversation that goes anywhere with someone. Be willing to rethink your point of view. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying be willing to listen. He says, be a genuinely curious person. Be a good listener. Ask good, honest questions. Find some point of agreement. Again, for crying out loud, there's got to be some point of agreement somewhere, right? And agree with them and understand the power of belonging. Understand the power of belonging. And so the reality is, is that, man, the gospel is far too great to keep in our small little safe circle. The rest of the story is amazing. Peter goes up 40 miles to Caesarea and uh, they, they all receive Christ. It says it this way in Acts 10. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. It means he doesn't show favorites. He doesn't create categories. God doesn't create categories. God loves everybody equally. He says, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. I mean, that means God doesn't love white people more than black people. God doesn't love Americans more than Mexicans. God does not love Republicans more than Democrats. God does not love rich people more than poor people. He shows no favoritism. He does not love us more than anyone else in the world. we got to get that in our hearts. We may be blessed. We may have received a lot. We may be in kind of the upper, <laughs> we definitely are in the upper part of the world, okay, when it comes to wealth. But it's not because he loves us more, okay. And, and we should be thankful for what we have. That's great. Not, not resenting any of that. I'm just saying that you can't look in the mirror and go, God loves me more because. He doesn't. He, he, he loves you because of Jesus, not because of you. He loves you because you were made in his image and God will redeem you and change you. And he loves you. And he loves everybody equally that way. Um, we got to decide if we want to influence the culture around us or we want to just create a wall. How about that? I'm out of time. I want to tell you a couple things here. The religious leaders seeking purity pulled away from sinners. The religious leaders seeking purity pulled away from sinners. Jesus, seeking fellowship, moved towards sinners. What would you rather be, pure or in fellowship with someone? Because there's only one way to reach someone for Christ. There's only one way to tell people about Jesus. And I'm not talking about changing your theology. Jesus didn't get crucified because of bad theology, <laughs> okay? He got crucified because of who he hung out with and his disgust for the religious people, right? Because they weren't hanging out. They were lost when it came to this. The Pharisees saw this whole image in, in terms of purity. And Jesus saw it in terms of mercy and ministry. And I just want to ask you this. We just got a minute. But are there any cultural norms that you have that you've created or you've grown up with that are keeping people from Jesus? That are keeping you from reaching people for Jesus? And if so, you have to tear that down. Because that is not from Jesus. That's from your cultural norm.
The passage ends with the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit, verses 44 to 45. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles. It doesn't end quickly or easily because now when he goes back and tells it all, the Jews are upset. And then Gentiles go out and come to Christ. And Paul goes out, starts reaching people for Christ. And more Gentiles and Jews receive Christ. And then Paul gets in trouble, Acts chapter after 15, they have to make a decision. This is not an easy conversation in the book of Acts. That Gentiles and Jews are sitting down together in church. That's why the book of Galatians is written. There's so much in here. The reality is this. The early church had, Peter had to make some internal changes to see a people as dearly loved by God. And willing to be loved by God. So far as that Jesus would even reach them. What would that look like for us? Again, who... Please don't tell me, (laughs) but who disgusts you? Who who is on the other side, let's say? Who do you feel uncomfortable with? Just the fact that you feel uncomfortable with creates a wall and a barrier for you reaching them for Christ. How do you share the gospel with someone if you don't have a relationship with them? A true loving, caring relationship. Everybody has a moral circle. And I don't know why, but we show kindness to people inside the circle. And we... Hold people with disdain who are outside the circle. And we create that. Again, I'm not talking about changing theology. I'm talking about changing behavior. I'll close with this. Paul, 1 Corinthians 9, he says this. He, by the way, Paul was pretty good at this. Okay, He said, for though I am free from all, I have, be, I have made myself a servant to all. That, well, check this out. I might win more of them. Paul's only concern was that I might win more people for Jesus. His only concern. He says to the Jews... I became a Jew. Why? To win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Even though I'm not under the law, that I might win those under the law. He's talking about the religious people of the Jews. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. I didn't change my theology to reach people. I I just denied some of the things I normally did so I could reach people. That I might win those outside the law. That was it. To the weak, I became weak. Why? That I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Why? I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them and its blessings. So who is difficult for you to reach? Who is on the other side of a wall that you have created or your culture has created, your friends have created, your church has created, that creates a safety barrier so you don't have to interact with them? Because if truth were really true, they disgust you. You will never build a relationship with someone who disgusts you. You will never impact them for Christ if they disgust you. And if people disgust you, you forgot who you were. You were disgusting to God, spiritually speaking. And he crossed that barrier and loved you in Jesus Christ. Are you willing this week to change your preferences? Not your theology, your preferences, so more people could come to Christ. Would you be all things to all people so someone would be saved? Would you be willing to build a relationship with someone that is on the other side of your comfort zone so that you could live Jesus in front of them. Otherwise, we don't have any hope for our church. We're just going to be another church that the world looks at and says they're disconnected. We will die one day, dwindle down, because we really don't love the people that we used to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ who gave himself for us, that he died on the cross We get to even receive the Lord's table today, which is the body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ given for us. 
He willingly went to a cross because we were unclean. We were disgusting. We were separated from you. We were bound for a Christless eternity for hell, Lord. And yet his love for us was so compelling that he gave himself for us. And we rejected him. And yet he still loved us. May we have that kind of love towards others today. And if we don't, Lord, we're not in a good space to take the Lord's table. Because we have something wrong in our heart. May we clear that up with you. If we need prayer, if we need encouragement, if we need just to be honest with someone, may we come up at our prayer time right here. Just to be able to say, these are the people that disgust me. Just be honest and say, I need help. I need prayer. To see them as people whom God loves. No matter how hard it is to see that. I want to see him as God loves. God, change our heart. We pray in your name. Amen.